Well, it's not Veterans Day or it's not Armed Forces Sunday or anything like that, but nevertheless, you're familiar with these uh, victory parades, right, from uh, men and women returning from uh, overseas. When I came back from Desert Storm in 91, remember that one? Yeah. Uh, the, uh, wasn't anything like this, I can tell you, but it wasn't, it wasn't bad. We flew into uh, Westover Air Base in Springfield, Massachusetts, and there was about 40 of us returning on that flight, and uh, we landed there, and then they had to bus us from the plane to a hangar, and uh, they told us, well, you know, there's a small reception for you in the hangar, and so I knew there was something up, though, when I saw a red carpet going into the hangar from where the bus was going to drop us off. I thought, well, maybe that's, you know, maybe that's there all the time for dignitaries or whatever. So we walked down the red carpet, and then the hangar doors started to open, and inside were 2,000 people waving flags and cheering and uh, shaking our hands, and it was just, you know, it was marvelous, right? It was also 1.30 in the morning. So people from Springfield and Hollyoke and Worcestershire and even uh, um, Hartford, Connecticut had come up to greet people returning from overseas, and this was going on for weeks, and uh, they, would, they would call and find out when the planes were coming in, and they would be there to, to meet people. But you've seen the, uh, you know, you've seen victory parades like this in movies and stuff. Um, people waving flags, shouts for joy, welcome home, and all that. You know, it, things really haven't changed much because if you go back to the days of the Bible, when a king conquered another nation or a general captured a city, you know, he returned to a celebration with his own people. And in the ancient Near East, you know, paper was a new thing, and it was very expensive, so, you know, they couldn't cut up pieces of paper and throw them around, but instead they would wave palm branches, because there were plenty of those around, and the people would gather at the entrance of the city to welcome home the victors with shouts of cheers and excitement and joy. The king would ride triumphantly on a horse that stood tall and did that little Prance, you know, I know, some of you are, are horse people, you know better than me, right? We, we've seen it all in the movies anyways. Well, Jesus did the same thing. He, he rides into Jerusalem to kick off the last week of his life. People get news, he's coming, gathers at the entrance to the city, and they follow him in. Now, the city's packed anyways with loads of people and tourists there to celebrate the annual Passover festival. And people are showering Jesus with praise. They're waving palm branches in victory and shouting, Hosanna, which is like a hooray, or it's a, it's a glorification cheer is what it is. Uh, some sources say it's also a literal, its literal meaning is help or save, I pray. In fact, we just read it in the Psalm, that Psalm 118, Verse 25, save us, we pray, O Lord. That's, that's Hosanna. Now, they're doing this because they've heard that he's the king of Israel. And this is interesting because you've got to wonder, well, what's he done yet? What victory do they think he's won? 
There hasn't been a war or an overthrow of the Roman Empire by the, the Jews or anything like that. Can anyone guess what all the excitement is about? What is it, DJ? The Savior's coming. Why are they so excited? Do you know what he, do you know what he did just before this? Yes, he did. Hey, catch. Good answer. Yes, he raised, he raised Lazarus from the dead. And uh, that news was getting around. It was a big deal. Victory over death, maybe. That's why they were celebrating it. I don't know. I mean, it seems uh, if the disciples didn't quite get what was going on, as it says in the scripture, then, then how would the people really get it, you know? It doesn't matter, though. At this point, Jesus is all the rage. He's like a rock star. He's popular among the people. Hated and feared by the authorities, but revered by the people. Whatever the reason the excitement is, I mean, there's no doubt that this is a victory parade. You got all the elements. You got the people, the sh shouting, the cheering, the waving, the palm branches, which, like I said, was reserved for kings returning from victory. Except there's one strange thing about all this. Can you guess what it is? What is it, DJ? Yeah, here you go. There's another one for you. Oops. Claude's got it. Bad throw. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus is on a donkey. Not on a proud and mighty horse or even a fancy chariot. He's on a donkey, which, you know, compared to a majestic horse is smaller, kind of sad looking and depressed animal, even kind of silly in comparison. And the one, the one Jesus is riding is young and has never had anyone ride on it before. It hasn't been in war, doesn't have the distinction of carrying supplies or towing carts full of arrows and spears. This donkey is not impressive. And yet this donkey is the key to what Jesus' victory is all about. Verse 16 says, The disciples didn't understand what these things meant at first, but they did later, when Jesus was glorified. And then they remembered. It seems the disciples weren't impressed with the donkey either during this victory parade. I mean, there's no mention of them saying anything about it. If they had been, they might have understood just what, just what kind of victory Jesus would bring. The same is true for you and me. We know about the palms. We know about the people shouting. But we should, look, we should take a, a closer look at the donkey because he or she, as Mike Konzelman pointed out, well, in this picture anyways, is there two donkeys there in this one? So Mike says that they used to own donkeys and he says that it's got to be a it's got to be a female because the colt will always hang around the mother and not the male. This is a, you know, this is a Renaissance era painting. Somebody took, artists took the liberty of putting two donkeys in there. At any rate, we look at the donkey to see what enemies Jesus has defeated. Who are these enemies? Well, the people back then thought that Rome was the enemy. 
You know, they'd uh, conquered, Rome had conquered Judea and had soldiers and garrisons all over the place. And Israel hoped that Jesus would bring back the glory days of King David. You know, they were hoping to be free and away from any oppression uh, uh, that there, you know, that, that, there would, that there could ever be in the future. And it was true that the Romans could be considered Jesus' enemy since it was a Roman governor that okayed his death and a Roman centurion who beat him and stabbed him, hammered the nails into the cross. But Jesus' list of enemies only begins with the Romans. An even greater enemy turns out to be his own people, the chief priests, the scribes, the defenders and keepers of the laws of Moses and the temple worship. They were not happy with Jesus. They were not happy with the raising of Lazarus from the dead. That was infuriating to them because it, it meant that they were losing their power. They couldn't raise people from the dead. So they huddled, huddled together in fear and anger saying, if we allow him to go on like this, everyone will believe in him and not Moses. We'll lose our popularity and influence and the Romans will take everything away from us to try and regain control. They even pointed fingers at each other, the Pharisees. You know, they, 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 it, says, in, it says, says here in John, they said, we're not gaining anything. Look, the whole world is going after him. And this is where things start to take a turn. The next step for these chief priests is to get Judas to turn on Jesus so they can arrest him and accuse him of, uh, in a phony court and then kill him off. Problem solved. They would get the crowd to change their hosannas into what? Crucify him. I don't have enough candy to throw to all of you. But see, we haven't gone far enough, really. Jesus' enemies are not just the Romans, and they're not just his own people. An even greater enemy is what's driving the chief priests to do what they're doing. Jealousy, see? The people are following Jesus now and treating the Pharisees like chopped liver. They also have fear that they may lose their privileged positions in Jewish society, which gives them power and allows them, to, allows them to eat and drink well and have a roof over their heads 24, hour, 24 hours. Their, their job security is in jeopardy, see? They also have anger. Jesus has been telling these guys they need to change their ways and follow him, or there's no heaven or eternal life for them. There's no resurrection for them. Only condemnation. They have greed. Jesus attacked their money-making schemes in the temple. And they don't like the fact that Jesus is letting people worship him instead of God alone. And the fact that he's claiming to be God also infuriates the chief priests. So you wrap all that together, and that starts to bring, kind of brings things a little closer to home, doesn't it? Greed, anger, hatred, jealousy, fear, all these things and more come from deep within all of us. It's, it's called sin, and we know it, that it's in the dark places of our hearts and minds. We see it in the world around us, but we still haven't gone far enough. There's one more enemy of Jesus to name. 
It says here, uh, the inevitable navigation system. You have arrived at your destination. Death. That last great enemy we face is death. The consequence of greed, jealousy, anger, hatred, fear, and everything else that put Jesus on the donkey so he can ride into the lion's den of Jerusalem and be nailed to a cross. You see who the real enemies are now. Not just Roman soldiers and a few chief priests of Israel. Jesus is going up against the very enemies which plague us. He's going to battle against the dark places of our hearts and minds. He's taking on our worst enemies, even Satan himself. His war is ultimately against our greatest enemy, death and the grave. And how does he go into this mother of all battles against these enemies? Well, on a donkey. On an animal that conveys humility. Even though they're known to be stubborn and they kick, they're not animals of violence and bloodshed. You know, they, they don't go charging into war, carrying soldiers, getting all the glory of the animal kingdom like horses. Donkeys are meek in comparison. Servant-like, if you will. But see, a war was going on, and Jesus would ride that donkey into the worst of what his enemies, our enemies, would do to him. He wouldn't pull out a sword and cut people, you know, those who were out to kill him down. He wouldn't launch arrows or spears into the hearts of those who crucified him. Instead, he took a few punches to the face, got scourged within an inch of his life, dripping blood all the way to the hill where he was crucified. By the way, uh, if, any, if any of you follow the news from the Vatican, uh, the holy stairs have just been unveiled after centuries of being covered with wood. So these holy stairs are the 28 stone steps that are believed to have been relocated from Jerusalem to Rome during the 4th century, and pilgrims would climb up these stairs and pray and do their penitential prayers and all that. Well, Catholic Church covered these stairs with wood in the 1700s so that it would be, they would be protected. Well, they've, they've kind of gone through a renovation. They've taken the wood off, and now you can go climb these stone steps again. And people have said that there, there are uh, that what look to be drips of blood on the steps. And legend has it that those are the drops of blood of Jesus when he was brought before Pilate. If that is true, then you can now go to these steps and walk the same steps that Jesus walked before he went and saw Pilate. Now, legend has it also that the donkey that carried Jesus into, into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday followed him to Calvary. Appalled at the sight of Jesus on the cross, the donkey turned away but could not leave. It said that the shadow of the cross fell upon the shoulders and back of the donkey as a testimony of the love and devotion of the humble little donkey. You can even buy a Christmas ornament of him. Now, I hadn't noticed before, but those of you who have owned donkeys, or, you know, now that I've looked into it and seen the backs of donkeys, they have a cross on it. Yeah? 
And uh, so that's where the legend comes from, that it was from this donkey who saw Jesus nailed to the cross. Now, whether the donkey could really have had those feelings and thoughts, it's irrelevant. I think what the legend reminds us is the love and devotion Jesus has towards us. He rode into Jerusalem for one purpose, to make that little victory parade come true in a big way, a huge way. He rode into Jerusalem to become your victor. Your victor of prince, or the prince of peace for you to show you his love and to defeat all your enemies. Now, how did Jesus gain the victory? Well, he let those enemies do their worst to him. He didn't stop the violence. He willingly climbed those steps the Pilate's judgment seat, and then to the cross. All the sin of the world, including ours, surrounded him, and it looked like they'd won when darkness fell that day. The chief priests thought it was over and that they could go back to business as usual. But we know better. We know what happens next. We know of a morning that shattered the darkest places of sin. We know of a stone that was rolled away and revealed an empty tomb. We know of a Savior who rises from the dead to defeat death once and for all. And then the disciples understood, didn't they? Jesus was, his victory was bigger than just pushing back a few Roman soldiers or greedy, resentful priests. His victory was over everything sin, death, and the devil could do to us. And it came by riding into town on a donkey. It came by way of a cross. It came because of his victorious resurrection from the dead. But I don't want to take us full bore into Easter just yet. You know, we're almost there. Nevertheless, Palm Sunday is a victorious parade that's been going on all over the, over the world since that very first Palm Sunday. Every hymn and let me go back to the yeah, every hymn and song of praise the church sings is added to the sounds of that parade. Every prayer we pray raises the volume of that celebration. Every day we follow Jesus in faith and obedience for joining the crowds who followed Jesus that first Palm Sunday. Today in this service and every day in our lives the the love and devotion to Christ and to people, we join in a victory parade that takes us to heaven and eternity with him. Now let me go back to the uh, cartoon for a second about death. You know, this is wrong, actually. For the Christian, anyway, the inevitable navigation system will lead to that enemy called death, but it's not our destination. The final destination is an eternal parade, a celebration with all the saints in the presence of God. Now, the more you think about it, the donkey has as much significance or more than the palms, doesn't it? So maybe we should name Palm Sunday Donkey Sunday. Yeah? No? No takers for Donkey Sunday? We could make it a local custom here. And then your next pastor will come along and be like, what? Donkey Sunday? Are you guys crazy? 
Nevertheless, may God's grace and peace be with you through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.